0: Under the Controlled Substances Act and Corollary State Law, the growth, trafficking, sale, possession, or consumption of psychedelics may be a felony punishable by imprisonment, fines, forfeiture of property, or some combination thereof. Psychedelic Alex is for general information only. Information provided on the show does not constitute legal advice, nor does your listening to the show create an attorney-client relationship with the host. Hello, I'm attorney Gary Smith, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Psychedelic Alex, The Law of Psychedelics my ongoing exploration of the question of the law of psychedelics.
1: Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Know Your Rights. My name is Laura, and I'm your host. We are continuing our conversation about cannabis and what is legal and what's not. And I know that in some of our previous episodes, we talked about briefly about cultivation and how you can grow. But we really wanted to dive deeper into it this episode, and we have... A really fantastic uh, panelist today. Joining us, Gary Smith. Gary, would you mind just introducing yourself to our listeners?
0: Well, um, as you've already said, Laura, I am Gary Smith. I am a almost 30-year veteran attorney here in Phoenix, Arizona. I am one of the founding partners of Guidant Law Firm, and relevant to today's practice, I am also the President and one of the founding directors of the Arizona Cannabis Bar Association. I have had an active cannabis practice for going on I guess I'd estimate it to be 12, 13 years now Um, and really uh, I came onto the scene back when Arizona started to flirt with its medical program and obviously that passed and we've been going at it 12 years ever since. Uh, It's been great and uh, now we've got recreational here as well.
1: It is super exciting to see. You know to see cannabis become more normalized to see people talking about it. And it's not something that they try and have to talk about in dark corners or hide under the bed that, you know, you can just talk about it.
0: Oh, a- a- absolutely. Although um, we still are living with a lot of the old isms around it. So resultingly, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And I know that's one of the main goals of your show is to make sure we dispel the rumors and bring in the truth.
1: Absolutely. Um, So I would love to talk really kind of briefly about what actually is legal if you wanted to grow your own cannabis. So, you know, you can grow it now for both recreational and medical. Can you give us kind of a brief overview of what is legal?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I before I do that, I am obligated, <laughs> of course, to always give my standard stock warning. This is not legal advice to the listener, and I am not your lawyer. If you really want to get solid, reliable answers, you should go hire independent counsel and pose your questions directly to them. Everything I'm talking about here is for general information purposes only, and my malpractice carrier thanks you. So (laughs) that being said, by the way, you can tell I'm a little bit of fun too, um, which is surprising for a lawyer. But um, first word of caution to everybody is to remember federally, cannabis, marijuana, whatever you want to call it, same plant, different names, is still illegal. So at the federal level, everything we're talking about doesn't exist in a legal sense in any capacity. Right now, the fact that there's any cannabis in the country at all is merely by the grace of the federal authorities who allow this to happen, even though our criminal laws and other related laws haven't changed. That being said, at the state level, where we're talking about state jurisdiction, here's a simple rundown of what's now permissible here at home in Arizona. So we now have a medical program and we have a recreational program. Directly answering your question about home cultivation under the medical program, uh, you would have a right if you didn't live within 25 lineal miles of a dispensary once upon a time to be able to have cultivation rights. But ever since our recreational law passed, now everybody has cultivation rights for the most part. There are some exceptions and I'll get into that. So the old 25-mile rule really kind of doesn't matter anymore, but I would still encourage people to keep and maintain their medical cards for a lot of other reasons. Now, on the new recreational law, what it provides for home cultivation is that uh, adults are able to grow at their residence up to six plants per adult, 12 plants maximum per household have to be adults, of course. Now, this means if you happen to have a fraternity and you've got 14 guys living in a house together, no, you don't get to aggregate six plants up to 14 people and have a plantation in the backyard. No, 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 no. What you get is 12 plants max for the entire household. So if you've got one per, or excuse me, two people or 20 people living with you, 12 is the max.
1: That makes a ton of sense. And uh, so where can you grow you know i know we mentioned like turning your backyard into a plantation like can you just stick it in your garden?
0: um oddly enough yes what the law requires is if you're going to home cultivate that you do it in a place and in a manner that is not visible from the outside and is behind a locked uh, door or the equivalent so in theory could you do it in your backyard yes provided you meet those criteria so you know, most people have a perimeter fence around their property. In in some of the HOA neighborhoods, other neighborhoods may not have fencing, so you have to consider that. But you could alternatively put in like a proper greenhouse with a door that locks. So you need to consider that. Also consider the views from your property perimeter. Can people easily see over your walls or into your greenhouse? If they can, you're in violation. So if you're growing low plants like Indicas tend to be shorter, or maybe you're doing a sativa, but you're really good about trimming it so it doesn't get over that fence line. Uh, you would probably be okay. But, you know, literally walk around your property from outside and see if you can see where it is. And if you can, make changes.
1: That makes sense. And you said that there were exceptions, though, about who can grow. What are the exceptions?
0: Um Okay, so exceptions for growing back in the medical days, you could, for example, have caregivers, but again, in this new world where literally everybody has home grow rights, you can. Uh, Additional exceptions of people who can't home grow uh, would be uh, people below the the legal age, um, people who live in, and this is going to be the most common instance, I think, for your listeners, are people who live in places where it's not permitted. So the Biggest example of this I can think of, and this is going to be most impactful to your audience, are folks who live in rented properties. It is almost always the case, and I I would almost go so far as to say always the case, that landlords will not tolerate any kind of home cultivation in their leasing. And there are reasons for this, and it's not just, well, landlord's just a jerk. You've got to remember, landlords have to answer to insurance companies on their property. They have to answer to banks if they have a mortgage on their property. And that's very common that people uh, who you rent from actually owe a bank for the thing you're renting. And those banks also typically are very opposed to having any cannabis on the property because of the federal illegalities and the implications of all that that means. And not that your listeners would necessarily care about this, but it can even get as difficult as the presence of cannabis possibly risking an ability to file bankruptcy. There is some restriction under U.S. bankruptcy law that businesses involved with cannabis are not permitted to access bankruptcy because that would mean that the U.S. trustee who administers those bankruptcies might in turn have to handle those assets. And how does a federal agent because that's what a U.S. trustee is, do something that the federal law says they cannot do. So there are myriad reasons why landlords would be very leery to allow people to home cultivate or even to consume on the premises, which is a whole additional issue.
1: That is definitely a separate issue. For (laughs) for sure. For for sure. And really, you know, a large percentage of people are renters. So that makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and I get uh, calls probably every two months or so. I do no advertising for this at all. So people just find me. Uh, But I get calls about every two months from people complaining that they ran into some cannabis related issue with the apartment they rent from. Now, I, I don't handle landlord tenant stuff. So I typically send those folks to other lawyers I know who handle that kind of stuff. But it's almost universally bad news for the tenant.
1: I mean, generally, pretty much, if you can't have a dog, you're probably not going to be able to have cannabis plants, typically.
0: Yeah. That, <laughs> not always a fair comparison, but often a fair comparison.
1: Um, So, the one thing we've talked about in some of our other episodes was, like, you can't always control how fast your plant grows, right? If you can only have a certain number of plants, and legally you're limited to a certain number of grams or ounces, like... What do you do if the plant grows more than you can legally possess?
0: Right. So that is a gray area right now because of the way the statute is worded. It seems to imply that whatever you home grow, you can keep at home. But I agree, as a vestige of both what a person can go and purchase from a dispensary or a marijuana establishment, which is our term for recreational facilities. Uh, There are limits on that. And also, if you were a patient, there are limits. But there's an ambiguity in the recreational statute. And the way we have been interpreting it, and we're waiting for a case that's going to tell us how the courts view this. And by the way, you don't want to be that person. uh, But we've been telling everybody, you know, whatever you're keeping at home, keep it at home. Don't be talking about it. Don't be showing it off. Don't throw your weed in the car and drive it around for the weekend because you'd want to take your weed out for a drive. You know, keep it at home and try to keep on hand no more than what is reasonably necessary. If you're just stockpiling lots of cannabis, here's what happens. Even if the statute says you're okay and even if your intentions are innocent, a prosecutor who's got an bug up their butt, or a a desire to prove something could opt to make you the poster child. And even if you go through that entire experience and win the argument, you will still have had to have gone through that entire experience of being criminally charged, tried and convicted, or not convicted, if you're fortunate. And regardless, even if you're not convicted, who wants to go through that? It's hellaciously expensive. It will just knock years off of your life from the stress and anxiety. So prudence and being careful are just absolutes in this
1: that makes a ton of sense um so then that leads to obviously then they shouldn't sell or give away what you grow like if you have extras can you sell it can you give it away
0: ah okay great questions Uh, really really good questions so the law allows you to gift cannabis to other people you are not permitted to receive anything of value in exchange and the idea here is the, the law is meant to protect against and prohibit any commercial activity outside of the licensed dispensary or uh, marijuana establishment system. The only people authorized to be selling cannabis in Arizona are those license holders. And resultingly, they are very aggressive about making sure nobody else gets to do it. They like their profits. Um But yeah, you can, you can freely gift. So, you know, if I grow some extra at home, Laura, and I just feel like I would like to give you some and you're smiling, so you would like me to give you some, I can do that as long as you don't give me anything in exchange. And and I mean, literally nothing of value. Like you couldn't even say, hey, thanks. You know, I've got some, some brownies here. I'll I'll trade you those brownies. We can't do that.
1: And that makes sense. Um, how do just dis- do dispensaries grow their own? So they don't like you can't someone can't say, Oh great, now I want to grow for a dispensary and be licensed like that. Do dispensaries like grow their own and they don't have people like home growers?
0: Uh there are well, <laughs> yeah. The entire system of of cultivation here in Arizona is intense regulated and the license holders these dispensary license holders have what we call fully integrated licenses and this is very different in Arizona than a lot of other states and what we do in Arizona is issue a singular license that lets you do it all other states, Fracture their industry. So, for example, if you just want to be a cultivator, you you like doing the farming and you don't want to do the retail sales, you can go in other states and get a cultivator's license from that state, which only allows you to cultivate in that state. Again, fifty states, no federal permission here, so each state has their own program. No two are alike. Um, additionally, the the rules and statutes here provide that cultivation has to take place inside locked, secured facilities that are under the license holders' complete control. And the way the license holders typically do this is through subcontracting to individuals who want to cultivate. And even then, those individuals must have agent cards in the medical context. It's tied directly to that dispensary, or in the recreational side, we actually do now have independent contractor type agent cards so you can go get an agent card and float around from facility to facility. But you're always, always, always underneath that license holder.
1: That makes sense, because it is a business.
0: Oh, 100%, and it is an intensely, insanely regulated business. So, resultingly, there's no home cultivation All the products get grown inside of these very large industrial-sized cultivation centers. There are some cultivators who do it outdoors. You can absolutely do that. I mean, we're talking plants here. They grow in the sun, right? The catch, though, is to really get consistent yields out of these plants, you really need industrial indoor conditions. Arizona is just a tough place to grow stuff outdoors to begin with. And then you factor the, the intensity of the sun, the variability of it, and also fugitive pollen, arid conditions, et cetera. Yeah, indoor growing, more technologically challenging, but you're getting greater consistency and greater yields.
1: That makes sense. So if someone just wants to start getting into growing, if they've never done it before, like what are some beginner tips that you can offer for them?
0: Okay, are you talking the home cultivator or the, the industrial? The home cultivator. Com- okay, so the home cultivator, again, Arizona now allows for limited home cultivation. I will tell you freely, I do this myself. It was one of the reasons I voted for the recreational statute. It had the one thing I only ever wanted, which was the right to home grow. And I absolutely do it. I did a bunch of research and it's a fun time. I will say if you've never been into gardening, it's a great place to start. I actually do garden. I have a whole array of uh, like organic vegetable garden in my backyard and I just, it's my passion. Um, But It's way easier than people think, but there is a steep learning curve at the front end. So things you want to factor, what kind of equipment you're going to buy, because you are going to need some equipment, how much you want to spend on it. But even so, if you're already accustomed to going to dispensaries and buying products anyway, juxtapose that against what your entry price for the equipment is. and If you factor how many times you will no longer have to go to a dispensary to buy something, That makes buying the equipment way more sensible and affordable. But you can do something as basic as a grow tent. You can go as fancy as a full-blown grow room, Um, although with the limitation on plants, I don't know why you would eat up that much square footage in your house, but you could if you wanted to. Uh, Or you can get fancy and do like a steel-type grow cabinet, which is what I opted to get. And then you also get to choose your growing medium. There are a variety of different ways. The main two are soil or hydroponic. I chose hydroponic.
1: That makes sense. So then if someone wants to, like you said, if subcontract for a dispensary, is there like a regulatory entity that they go to or do they actually go through the individual dispensaries?
0: Sure. Uh, Well, it depends which path they want to take. And the answer to that is really both. If you're just dedicated to medical only, although these days with dual licensing, that really kind of in a way doesn't exist anymore in the strictest of sense. It absolutely does on the books, et cetera. But as a practice, it doesn't. Um, but yeah, if you just wanted to go the medical route, you would go to the dispensary you want to work at or for, and you would, uh, get them to sponsor your agent card, which would tie you as an agent to that dispensary. And then you could work in their cultivation. Now, as a practical matter, most of these dispensary holders outsource their cultivation to third party subcontractors. So you might ultimately get sent to that party to tie yourself to them under employment, but you would still need the agent card sponsored through the dispensary. The alternative path is the recreational path, the new modern path that we just passed with our our latest recreational law, and that allows you to go to the Department of Health Services to get your own independent agent license. Which now allows you to go work at any of these facilities that provide recreational. So, yeah, just walk in, introduce yourself, tell them what you're looking for, and that is the way to guide you into those facilities.
1: So, if someone is just looking, you know, to get into this, they're feeling very passionate. I know you're, you know, you're a home grower. You're a part of the Arizona Cannabis Bar Association. Um, are there a lot of like advocacy organizations or places where people can be with like-minded growers?
0: Sure. Um, As far as a a grower's association, I'm not aware of one specifically in Arizona, but I think that's due in great part to the nature of our licensing. Because again, we have singular, fully integrated licenses. So we don't have like a cadre of independent cultivators. It's really a bunch of cultivators who are truly, in every sense, beholden to the license holder with whom they have contractually tied themselves. So. Because of that, we haven't seen an independent type cultivator association come into being, and I doubt we ever will. But that being said, there is a dispensary association. I understand it's, uh, you either have to have a dispensary to be a member, or you have to be on a certain descriptive list of criteria even to apply. So it's a bit exclusive. But there are other organizations here in town where people do come together, like, for example, the Marijuana Industry Trade Association is the biggest organization, uh, and it's been around for several years now, and they have monthly meetings that they host right in downtown Phoenix. Um, You can go, I think the website is Meta. Dash AZ.org. Don't quote me on that. I probably got that wrong. But if you just Google Marijuana Industry Trade Association, and its founder is a good friend of mine, Dimitri Downing. You could Google Dimitri, you'll find him easily. He's all over the internet. Uh, that is the place where most people go to do their networking. Separate from that, I'm also on the board of directors of the Arizona Cannabis Chamber of Commerce. We are at midst right now of reconstituting. We've got a bunch of fresh board members coming on, uh, but we don't have any events scheduled in the near term. But we would also be another resource for people to interface with. Additionally, there's uh, Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. They've been in Arizona the longest of anybody because they were the ones originally advocating for the reform. And they still continue on to this day because there's still so much to be done. But they have a pretty good presence and footprint here in Arizona as well.
1: That's fantastic. And I did also want to say, too, that the local public library also has a lot of resources. So if anyone is interested, like I know, for instance, we have the pot book, which is kind of like a standard where it's like evidence based and science based. We've got like cannabis and CBD cookbooks. Um, So the public library is a really great resource. We also have like online access to some of the cannabis magazines as well. So check out your public library as well. Um, And if anyone, you know, wants any of those resources, you can email me here at the podcast at podcast at mcldaz.org. And I will definitely link you up and get you in touch with those resources that he mentioned. So Gary, you know, we covered a whole lot of things so far. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you really would like our listeners to leave this episode with?
0: Oh God, <laughs> there's so much. Do you have six weeks? Uh, well, in the time allotted, which we only have mere minutes, uh, the big things are it's, it's a wonderful new world that we're in that these cannabis laws have relaxed and now there's... Uh, availability and in, in very widespread fashion but remember this was a hard fought victory and it's not over yet which i guess is my long-winded way of saying this is still everybody's to lose if we turn this into an ugly problem we're going to lose the argument we'll lose momentum and, and things can go badly so You know, be responsible, enjoy yourselves, of course. Remember also, this is medicine for a lot of people, myself included. Uh, I am very openly spoken about the fact that I have had a patient card since the very beginning, and I do have a qualifying condition for it. And for me, it legitimately is medicine, and I know this from direct experience, and I know this from so many people in my life. But the fact that you can also use and enjoy this recreationally does not diminish the medicinal value. So that is my caution, to everybody, is remember, take this seriously, and and it's yours to lose.
1: That's a great point. You know, I think, if anything, it's important for people to remember that these can always be changed. You know, these laws, these propositions, and we did, you know, talk briefly about the voter intent law and, like, how this was a proposition, but... Like you said, you know, there are still things going through the courts that define the gray areas and define the limits.
0: Yeah. And if I can just give you a little tidbit more there, since you mentioned that things can be changed at the legislature and this came through an initiative. All of that's accurate. But the one thing I would clarify is that people need to understand changing these laws is very hard, almost as hard as passing these laws. What most folks don't realize, and this is so critically important. Neither our medical statutes for marijuana nor our recreational statutes came through the state legislature. All of it got passed by public initiative. And only 14 states out of the 50 states even allow public initiatives. If this had been up to our state legislature, there would never be marijuana in Arizona. If you went down to the legislature today and ran a vote, they would do away with all of this if they could. So... Because of that, and I'll give you a little bit of Arizona history here for your, for your listeners. I mentioned at the beginning that, that Arizona had its, its um, medical law passed, but that was actually the second time we did it. Back in 1996, Arizona actually passed its first medical marijuana law, but the legislature killed it within months. They gutted it. And because they did that, the folks who ran the campaign to pass that medical law got their revenge, and they ran a second campaign, but not for medical marijuana. They instead ran a campaign to change the Arizona Constitution to protect voter initiatives, and this passed and resulted in what we now call uh, the Voter Protection Act, which is part of our Constitution, and it basically provides that whenever a statute gets passed by public initiative, meaning the people voted directly upon this at the ballot box rather than through the legislature, in those instances, the legislature and the governor both, they cannot terminate or impair the initiative. The only thing they can do is to improve and further the initiative. Now, that sounds great, but it also means you have to have a legislature with the will to do anything. And if you consider that it took us no joke a decade just to get testing passed. For a decade, we had no testing on our products, but at least not mandatory. People might have done it voluntarily, but it took a decade to just get that law passed. So yes, things can change. Yes, they can improve, but it's way harder than you think. So don't think, well, you know, today sucked, but tomorrow will be better. Nah, it's not gonna be tomorrow. It's gonna be like uh, Thursday, three months from now.
1: That's an excellent point. Thank you for clarifying that. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Have a question about psychedelics and the law? You're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalex.com. Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show. Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community.